Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people with dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Emmy-nominated actor and comedian Billy Gardell starred in the hit CBS sitcom Mike and Molly as Officer Mike Biggs for six seasons, and you can still see him in syndication there, as well as in his other previous recurring roles on the shows Lucky, Yes Dear, and My Name is Earl. He now co-stars as the colorful Colonel Tom Parker in the CMT series Sun Records. But it almost didn't happen for the journeyman stand-up comedian and Pittsburgh native, and Gardell tells me all about that and more, so let's get to it! So, Billy Gardell. Hey, man. <laughs> Thanks for joining me in the... Uh, We're in the lobby. The hectic lobby yeah. of check-in, check-out time. I like old New York. I always pick a low-key hotel. I, uh, I like Midtown and Hell's Kitchen. Those are my two favorite places <laughs> to hang. So. Now, I was just mentioning to you while I was uh, warming up the equipment that uh, your brother is Facebook friends with me. Yeah, yeah. It identifies our pictures. Uh, you never know who you're going to get, me or him, so... <laughs> Sometimes I'm in Florida, and sometimes he's on the Colbert show. So, <laughs> what's it like? Uh, but I also, you know, by being Facebook friends with him, I'm I'm up to date on your commercials for the for the for restaurant, the restaurant yeah. down we in Orlando. Had to, we had actually shut the restaurant down. Oh, because of uh, the numbers in the area, man. They were snowbirds, and uh, they leave four months a year. And I didn't negotiate that lease right. We had a good product and a cool thing. We just didn't get the numbers right. But I think we may try it again at some point later in Pittsburgh. Well, when you do it the second time, you have to negotiate a deal like the Wahlbergs did for Wahlburgers yeah, and man. Make, it, make a show well, out of it. Well, this is going to be a bigger deal, and uh, I don't know if we'll have time to do a show, but I certainly would love to follow that template. Now, you're, you're in New York mm -hmm. doing promo for Sun Records, which is a new series on CMT. Yeah, premieres uh, tonight, February 23rd. I don't know when this will air, but... Uh, this will be on Monday. Okay, 10 o'clock then, Thursdays, right after Nashville on CMT. And uh, it's an amazing show, man. It's about uh, the beginning of Sun Studios in Memphis, Tennessee. And it's where rock and roll was created. It was when the blues mixed with hillbilly music, mixed with the church, all through the vision of Sam Phillips. And I get to play the notorious Colonel Tom Parker, who when we begin to see him, we, we find out what a small-time con man he was and how he worked his way up into the music business and finally got his hooks in Elvis. Right, he was the uh, the the Steve Bannon, as it were, too. No, I don't think he was that bad. I really don't think he was that bad. <laughs> he was just taking money. <laughs> as a as a as a stand up comedian, mm -hmm. um, you know, take away the uh, the difference in platforms, CMT versus CBS, and, and the budget. Is it more fun to play a real life? person well than, i mean i can't mike? knock no because i can't knock one minute of mike and molly that was life-changing it was a one in a million shot and i got to do it with some of the greatest people in the world you know melissa and reno and katie swoozy lou niambi i mean rondy that that was a that was a magic time and it put me on the map to the point where afterwards i was like all right i want to try something different now i i love john goodman's career i love when gleason made a turn for the dramatic because being a bigger guy in Hollywood you know usually they're gonna make you spill some mustard on your shirt and fall through a table and I've been lucky enough to play uh, a lovely character Mike who always right. had a great moral compass and so what I wanted to see if I could do is kind of 
go down that character actor path. And when I read the script for Million Dollar Quartet, which is now Sun Records, it blew me away. And as soon as I read Colonel Parker, I was like, that's it. That's the guy I want to right. try to be. And I think, I think I got there, man. I had a great director, Roland Joffe, who directed The Mission and The Killing Fields. He directed this thing and shot it like a film. The kids are incredible. Chad Michael Murray, who plays Sam Phillips, kills it. And uh, I think it's a very special project. I'm, I'm really proud to be a part of this. Well, you mentioned you know wanting to follow the character actor trajectory now. Mm-hmm. Is, is that what you th- what you imagined when you were a kid in Pittsburgh or later in Florida? No, man. I you know my goal when I started was just to be able to pay the rent with jokes. I, you know, right. this got bigger than I ever ever thought it would. I mean, you always in the back of your mind hope that you're going to catch a break and or at least keep working as an actor. So Mike and Molly changed everything. And when I got to be on a huge show like that, it allows you the, the, uh, the space to try to do something different. And that's what, that's what I was interested in with the CMT project. Well, that's, that's why I asked just from a, a comedian in an acting role, if playing a real life person yeah, is more fun I, for I, a comedian I, acting than trying to inhabit a role well, that's no, not because formed. The, the colonel I kind of had to make up. There was a lot of parts of him I had to invent because I met four or five people in Memphis who actually knew the man mm-hmm. and um, nobody had the same description of this guy. So this guy was whatever the situation took. Uh, the CEO of Graceland gave me the best advice. He said, you got to play him with a twinkle in his eye because he couldn't have gotten away with all those crooked things if he wasn't charismatic. Right. So I figured, all right, well, let's, let's give him the scruples of Walter White, but let, maybe he sounds a little like Foghorn Leghorn. Right. <laughs> well, that is kind of the, the trick of every con man. Is it, it's the confidence part. It's a melodic thing where they, wanna, they want you to believe everything they're telling them, and they'll tell you anything to get you to that place. And the colonel was the king. Now, of course, you know, some people would argue that life is a game of confidence but definitely definitely with stand-up comedy confidence seems to be such a key starting out i think i think you yeah you have to have faith in your words because uh you get up there and the audience is going to tell you right away (laughs) so there's no 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 room to you know there's no wiggle room with that you just have to believe it more than they do to sell the joke and then hopefully that's a very loud lobby sorry (laughs) to put you here but um yeah it uh yeah, man, when you're up there, stand-up is about battle. It's about convincing the audience what you're saying is funny. And hopefully your words match that intensity. Acting is about letting them kind of see that happen in your eyes. It's, it's about letting them go inside. So it's a nice dichotomy. I think comics can turn to dramatic acting. I think it's a little harder for a dramatic actor to be a comic. <laughs> and, yet, and yet it seems like these days in this comedy boom, everybody is turning to stand-up. Well, you know, I think it goes in waves. I mean, we, I, was, I started in the peak in the 80s where right. everybody wanted to be a comedian. You know, it was just a very cool thing. And then the 90s, it kind of thinned out again, and now it's kind of gotten big again. I think like any other art form, you know, it gets big and it gets small. It's never quite as good as at the beginning, you know, the guys in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But, you know, we're doing our best to carry that on. Yeah, I think I saw, uh, I think the most recent egregious example I saw was Ken Bone, who was just a guy from one of the presidential is. debates, I don't know but who he that became is. like an internet meme for his look and his question at the last presidential debate. He decided he was going to do stand-up comedy really? after that. Really? Well, good luck, Ken. <laughs> I don't know. What did he say? What was his question? He actually had a serious question, but people just took his look 
like his larger guy with glasses and right. bald and oh and i this remember this guy i remember but then they turned out to be a weirdo right well then they have some well, weird stuff that they found out about him well, isn't that why he decides to go into stand-up comedy after I, that? Well, we're not all weirdos, man. We all start out a little angry, but hopefully the journey makes you a little lighter. <laughs> now, I, I'm glad that you really brought up the um, the 80s comedy boom because mm-hmm. people talk about what it was like here in New York or when everybody moved to L.A. Mm-hmm. People talk about the Boston scene in the 80s. People talk sure. about San Francisco. But in terms of, like, all-star, underrated comedy scenes in the 80s there's so many people who came out of central south florida yeah and man. you're one of them we, we we held our own we had a, who come out of there was me and uh wayne brady and larry the cable guy and uh who else daryl hammond came out of there um tom rhodes who's a great comedian yeah yeah we had a scene carrot top carrot scott top. thompson yeah exactly but you know the thing about the late 80s was nobody, the regan brothers the regans that's right brian and dennis and and so yeah we held our own down in florida we were more like road dogs you know new york is you know a place where you just perform in new york boston you perform in boston san francisco is the same way because they're big enough cities they can support that in Orlando, you kind of had to do, you know, a gig in Orlando or an open mic in Orlando, but you had to find other gigs in the road. So Florida became kind of our roadmap, and then that spread out to just being road dogs. But, yeah, we held our own, man. The cool thing about coming up in that time was, you know, we used to we used to bust each other's stones, and but the, we didn't look at each other like villains. I don't know when that <laughs> happened. Comedy's gotten very angry. I don't understand it, but, you know, it is what it is. Well, what was it like starting out there? I mean, it was you, great, you're, man. you're from I, Pittsburgh, but you moved to Florida I did. at when, what age? Well, I think about 13, and then okay. I did the summers in Pittsburgh with my dad, and I did the school year in Florida with my mom, my brother and sister and I. But starting out in the late 80s was amazing because, you know, the, the guys that were headlining the clubs at that time were, you know, Bill Hicks and Sam Kennison came through. And then, you know... A million comics that were just phenomenal comics. Kenny Rogerson, Don Gavin, guys that did live in Boston right. that would come down on the road because that was exploding, you know. And Ben Creed, that's the guy that taught me how to do comedy. And, you know, you just saw great comedians every single week. And as young comics, I mean, we would go to the club, we would do our open mic night Wednesday, but then we would watch all of that comic shows to learn, to watch, you know, to see how they did it. How many, how many clubs were there that you could drive from Orlando to oh my in God. the beginning. In Florida, we had a bunch, man. We had uh, Orlando, Tampa, St. Pete, and then you had all these little Florida weekend rooms like in Newport Ritchie and, and Jacksonville and, and uh, Tyndall Air Force Base. And I mean, Florida was littered with a lot of gigs. There was a chain down there called Coconuts, and uh, it was great, man, because it wasn't much money, but it was also run by a guy, Bob Shoemaker, who would let you do whatever you wanted on stage and that was a great place to develop you know what i mean he all bob's two rules were pay your tab and show up on time that was it so he never put like any kind of restrictions on us so you could kind of find your own voice how long did it take you to find your own voice i would say it took me they, they the old guys used to tell me it takes five to find your voice ten before you know how to write for it it probably took me seven and twelve i'm a slow guy <laughs> But uh, you mentioned Ben Creed. Was he the one who really took you under his wing? Or? Yeah, Ben, I, you know, I think all comics find their voice by, it's just like musicians. You listen to what influences you. And uh, 
you know, a lot of comics influenced me coming up. You know, my favorites, of course, George Carlin. I'll never be that good. And, uh, you know, but you want to aim for that if you want to be in that genre. And, and, and uh, Tom Rhodes really opened my mind uh, to a lot of different literature and traveling the road and the way to look at writing and, and the habit of carrying a notebook everywhere. But Ben was the guy whose comedy I saw and I went, I, I, I think that's close to what I want to do. And then you kind of find your way through that. You know, I love these guys that come along now and they're like, I do something like no one else. <laughs> No, you don't. <laughs> Stop it. You know? The, that's, that's what I always... The Rolling Stones listen to the blues, and they give credit to the blues, okay? So if they can do it, you can be humble enough to go, I was influenced by this or that, you know? That's what I always want to tell people when they get into Twitter fights over jokes. Yeah. I want to tell them, you know, people did these jokes before Twitter. Of course. <laughs> uh, look, I saw an interview one time, because I had a big question about that when I was younger, about... You know, how do you, how do you write your own jokes? And um, I saw this interview with Carlos Santana, and he was talking about guitars, and he said, hey, look, man, there's only so many notes. You know, there's an E, there's a C, there's an A. He goes, but it's how you tune your guitar. It's how you play those notes. You can tell my E from Keith Richards' E. You can tell Keith Richards' E from Pete Townsend's E. So that kind of opened my mind to, you know what, there's only so many premises, but it's what I think about those premises. It's how I think they're funny. And that kind of opened it up and, and, and helped me write. Did you move straight to Los Angeles from I want Florida? you to know I've been staying here for eight days, and this mm. lobby has never been this busy. They I must have heard I, we were, I picked it because it was a quiet They must lobby. have heard we were, I feel like we were, we're having on, this. We're on one of those radio shows, and we're on location at some barbecue shack. All right, go ahead. I'm sorry. I like it, it, it sounds like we're at a cocktail party. Yeah, it kind of does. For, if you're I, listening at That's home right, everybody. Car. We're at a cocktail party. That's what's going on here. All right, go ahead. Um, but I was asking, did you move straight to Los Angeles from Florida? No, or did no, you go no, no. somewhere I, else first? I started comedy in 87 in Florida. Mm -hmm. And then I worked all over Florida and Georgia and uh, Alabama and the Carolinas. And then around 92, I moved to New York City. Okay. I li lived in Long Island for a year. Um out in Huntington, and then I lived uh, just above Houston Street before they made it real nice uh, for the year <laughs> after that. And New York just kicked my ass, man. New York humbled me and 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 really put a beating on me. I mean, I my hats off to the New York comics because it's a hustle here, man. It's a hard grind here, and there's a lot of competition. And uh, it was good. It was a great experience at the right time because I left Florida thinking I was pretty funny. And I came up here in New York, let me know I really wasn't. <laughs> so I went back to Florida, mm -hmm. kind of regrouped. Then I moved to Atlanta and worked the Southeast. Then I moved to Chicago and worked the Midwest. And then finally out to Los Angeles in 96. And it only took 10 more years after that before I got a break. <laughs> well, when you moved to New York, did you have a support system? Did you move up with other comics? No, I, I just moved up here and I was renting a basement uh, in this guy's house out in, uh, in, in Long uh, Island, in yeah, Huntington. Huntington, right down the street from the East Side Comedy Club. Okay. I had become friends with uh, Richie Minervini and Joey Cola, who I okay. just adore both of those guys. And Joey Cola still uh, he does like warm he up. He does or warm so? up now for Rachel Ray, I believe, yeah, yeah. and he's a wonderful comedian. And uh, those guys came down to Florida. They did a gig. They said, "Come up, we'll get you some time." And Richie welcomed me into the East Side, and then I started working all the Long Island clubs and. 
and then slowly I got uh, I got past at Dangerfields, and I would get the late spots at Dangerfields, which I think is a rite of passage. A few proms, <laughs> and uh, you know, a few shows where you're on stage. People going, forget the Dangerfields is still in yeah in operation. You, some there's some nights you're up on stage like, what did I do with my life? So it's good for you. And then uh, slowly my way into the city, and then realized that you know what, man, I got to go back to Florida and really figure out what my where I want to go and what I want to do. So what? So what did you what did you take from that experience to learn when you? when you moved to Chicago and then to Los Angeles? I think leaving New York, I realized how much this is a business. I don't think I was ready to face it yet, but I think I realized it. When I moved to Chicago, I think I was confident enough in my act that I was ready to move to Los Angeles. Although I never ended up doing stand-up in LA. I've done everything kind of backwards. I didn't really go to the scene out there because I was always working on the road to pay rent and right. I'd come home and take acting classes. And then, um, you know, by the time I hit, I had never really been in that scene. And then I, I got a sitcom, but I'd been doing comedy for 20, 25 years. Right. So instead of getting the sit, instead of getting the special, then the sitcom, I got the sitcom, then the special. So I've kind of done it backwards, but everybody's path is different. You know? when, when we talked back in 2011, I remember you telling me the story about how you were ready to quit. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Right before you got Mike and Molly. Yeah, man. How do you... How did you keep yourself from not quitting? Well, when you, when you once you get that idea in your head, yeah. Once, the, once you know, there's a coach that once said, "If you're talking about retiring, you're already retired." And I was at that point just because, you know, my kid was two. I was far away from him all the time on the road. It was hurting my marriage. I wasn't seeing my kid, and and I just decided, you know what, this this isn't going to be more important than my family. So. I called a buddy of mine in Pittsburgh, and I was going to get on the radio with him on uh, DVE. Randy Bauman was going to give me a gig back there. And I said, I'm going to ride out one more pilot season. That was it. And uh, that's a three-month period in L.A. where they kind of bring the new shows out. You try to get cast on one, and you hope that it gets picked up. And I got six auditions in three months, and the last audition was Mike and Molly. So it was literally an 11th hour thing, you know? You had worked with Chuck before? No, never. No, no I'd never met him. I went in Not and did that audition. CBS, he wasn't part of the other yeah, CBS shows? No, I, I mean, I wasn't so on any of his shows. There's another lovely uh, executive producer out there named Greg Garcia who okay. who put me on Yes, Dear, and put me on My Name is Earl as a reoccurring okay, so it was character. Greg that you would work with. And Greg was a guy that really, he was my college education. It kind of got me ready for Mike and Molly. When I auditioned for Mike and Molly, I was actually, because of traffic, I was 15 minutes late to audition for Chuck Lorre. So I was like, by the time I got there, I was like, I've already ruined this, you know? So I walked in the room and I go, here's what I like to do. I like to find the most powerful executive producer in town, and I like to make him wait. And luckily he laughed. And then we went on with the audition, and uh, I got the call a couple days later that he was very interested in having me play Mike. At what point did you realize you had something? there um, that was gonna I think Melissa would say the same as long as as long uh, along with the rest of the cast the night we taped the pilot something spectacular happened and I can't put it into words but we all looked at each other like this is this is this is the one and it felt like we'd been working together for about three years so it was pretty powerful did that did that feeling help you survive the initial launch of the show and um, getting feedback about ratings and all you of know, that. You know, man, the, the, we were all, me and Melissa were over 40, and so was Reno. And, and, you know, we have such beautiful veteran actors on that show. We had Lou Mastillo, who played Vince, and Ronnie Reed, who played my mom, Susie Kurtz, who played, 
you know, uh, the girl's mom, and and there, between that maturity and the age we were at, there was just this feeling of, let's not worry about anything, let's just do the best show we can do, because I think we'd been in it enough to know that look, you can't control any of that. What you can't control is what happens here on the stage. And then we were blessed, man. We really stepped in it. We had Jimmy Burroughs direct us, who's the best television sitcom director in the history of television. I mean, directed Friends, Cheers, Will and Grace, you know, Taxi. So to have that kind of pedigree. And then you got Chuck Lorre producing the thing right. and CBS pushing it. I mean, it was really, it was up to us to screw it up. You know what I mean? It was just one of those perfect storms. Yeah, Chuck's had a good track record. But I'll tell you, the, the, the thing that made that show work was the trust and love that we had for each other on the stage, man. We really looked out for each other. There was nobody was like, I want this line, and why is that? It was just the opposite. We would go like, you know what, this doesn't work for me. Can give that to Lou, see if that works. Or, or Melissa would say, give this one to Katie because I think it'll come out of her mouth. But like, we really put the show first, and we were a great little, great little family. I still talk to every one of them. And then, of course, it didn't hurt that Melissa's career exploded. No, from my films. God, she was beautiful. And when it took off, this is a real credit to her, man. When it when when it took off, and we haven't seen something like that since Eddie, Eddie Murphy. I mean, it was huge. Yeah. And she came to work the same person, if not more humble. I mean, she was she was she was part of our little group, and uh, and it really, you know, it said something about her character, and 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 that blows me away. You know, to this day, it does. She's very kind, very giving. The only thing that she used to do that would worry us is she'd do her own stunts on the show. And we're like, you know you're the golden goose. Can you please not get hurt? Please, we're, we're begging you. you. You know, they have people for this. You can so you had a stunt this. double. I don't do any stunts. No. I'm, I'm you know, Gar, uh, Burroughs, Jimmy Burroughs, uh, he, he nicknamed it Gardell blocking. Because my favorite blocking is just standing still and saying my line <laughs> or sitting still. So he still tells his other actors these days, you got Gardell blocking. So since I talked to you last, that was the halftime special. So this is the second half. Yeah, man. We're in what, the third quarter, yeah, I what, guess. What adjustments? At halftime, you make adjustments. Well, you, the coach gives you a pep talk. What, yeah, what adjustments I, have you made for the second well, half? Well, I'm still struggling with my weight, but I'm working on it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I quit smoking, finally, which is good. And, uh, you know, just trying to take care of myself a little better. That's, that's the uphill battle for me. You know? What are you doing for that? Well, I'm on that angry diet where you don't eat any bread or sugar. It just makes you angry. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, that's why I'm not on that diet. That's brutal. Um, that's so brutal. so if, if Ben Creed helped mm -hmm. you in the early beginning yeah. and then uh, Greg Garcia gave you the, like, the college education, who... Mm -hmm. Who is, who is that person for you now? Well, I think the master's class was with, with Chuck Lorre and Jim Burroughs. That, mm -hmm. was, that was an honor to work with them. And my castmates. I mean, Melissa made me a better actor. Reno made me a better actor. Lou made me a better actor. Rondi made me a better actor. And, uh, and then so when this show was over, I was like, you know what? Okay, now I had a, 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 a beautiful success with Mike and Molly. I want to try to do something different. So I had my agents start looking for something that was the total opposite of Mike. Mike is nice, he has a moral compass, he's always kind, always does the right thing. And then I read the script for Sun Records and here was this guy, Colonel Parker, who would just lie when the truth works. And it was kind of fun to see if we could turn that page. And then once again, man, God, I step in shit, I really do. Because I, I uh, Leslie Greif produced this thing, who produced the Hatfields and McCoys, and 
Gil Grant is the guy that penned it, and he's a producer from NCIS in 24. And then we got directed by Roland Joffe, who shot The Killing Fields and The Mission. So he really, really, again, took me to a new place. So I've, I've been incredibly lucky. I mean, don't get me wrong. It took 26 years to be an overnight success. But I've been incredibly lucky to work for the directors and the producers that I've worked for. So, you know, I ask all of my guests this. Sure. I, I know it's a completely different comedy boom now than the one that you started in. Mm -hmm. But that said, what kind of advice would you give somebody just um, starting out now? I would, I would say a couple things. Um, number one, just don't quit. I'll, I'll take persistence over luck and looks any day of the week. Just don't quit. And sometimes when you're too broke to quit or too broke to leave the town you're in, that's a blessing. Number two, don't worry about what the two hip comics in the back of the room think. Just do your thing. Do your thing and make the audience laugh. Well, you've, uh, you make me and a lot of other people laugh, so thank you, Billy. Oh, thank you, man. Thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.